Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, let's go ahead and move this on over. Welcome everyone to our gathering here, the first Sunday in September here at the Table Dallas. We're glad you're joining us, whether you're doing here in person or live here up at the Mill Street House in Old Town Louisville, or whether you're joining us anywhere around the world sometime in the future via our podcast. We're glad that you're with us as uh, we begin a brand new series today, a brand new series. Uh, it's kind of a play. I did kind of a play. Maybe if you've seen it, it's called, anybody see it? The new series? Anybody see it? Unspoken Things. Unspoken Things. It's a play on, a little play. If you see the graphic, it's a little play on Stranger Things. Stranger Things. The Does anybody know? Everybody's looking at me like, am I the only one who watched Stranger Things? Yeah, because it reminds me of my childhood. Exactly. It reminds me of my childhood. I wore those clothes. I wore those knee high with the bands on it. I rode that banana seat bike. Anybody else? Yeah, a couple of us, right? So those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, right? But what we're looking at, right, is this idea, this concept that the things that are most important in a culture usually go unsaid. The most important things in culture usually go unsaid, right? And that's not, that's also obviously true of scripture, which was written in a particular culture with people of a certain culture with expectations of people within that culture reading. Remember, our challenge, as we talk about often at the table, is how do we read something that was not written to us, but was written for us, us, right? So it's not written to us, but it's written for us. And so one of the challenges in front of us is then understanding particularly the culture in which it was written. So to begin with now, I want to give you guys just a little bit of a, we'll just kind of, well, I don't want to break up any families. All right, so we'll go, we'll go this way, y'all, and we'll go this way. Y'all can jump in too if you like. And I just want you to talk amongst yourselves here and come up with an answer to this question, all right? Everybody ready? All right, this group. And y'all are a group, right? Talk amongst yourselves. It is wrong to shame someone. It is wrong to shame someone. Agree, a dis- agree, disagree, and why? Or why not, if the answer is the other. All right, go. It is wrong to shame someone. Agree, disagree, why? Go. So shame is a powerful tool in the biblical world, sometimes used well and restorative, other times it was used and abused and used hurtfully. So we can overlook the positive uses of shame and misunderstand them completely when we read the Bible through the lens of our Western individualistic eyes. Remember now, this scripture that we're reading, that we'll be engaging today, is not written to our culture. It's not written to an individualistic mindset. That's those of us who see things through the lens of me and mine, what's good for me and good for my family, right? As opposed to the society in the time of Jesus and earlier throughout the scripture, which is collective. 
It's about the we over the me. The challenge that comes with that is that we often try to, if we're not careful, we will default through the lens of our individualistic eyes. Especially when we come to something that seems to be uncomfortable, confusing, maybe somehow unclear, we tend to revert to our individualistic Western eyes, our typical values, the way that we define things, and we then overlay that on the scripture. So the series that we're going to be doing for the next several weeks is about making sure that we recognize this lens, that there is this lens, ours is individualistic, the scriptures as a whole are collective, and the influence that has on how we read and understand stories. And we're going to go through a couple of examples today as kind of a way to set it up. And then we're going to start looking at some of the key areas of unspoken things that are throughout the scriptures, particularly in the First Testament, that we might overlook and therefore miss part of what God is trying to communicate to us. A couple of things that are going to help guide us in this series. All right, I've already said the first one. The most important things in a culture usually go without being said. Chris and I have encountered this as we've spent the last better part of the last 20 years working in a culture that is Eastern, that is also collectivist, and we're slowly learning how all, especially the most important things, are left unsaid. They're unspoken. You're just supposed to know it. And when you don't know it, you step in it, and then you really feel like an idiot because you didn't know, right? Now, if they're nice and they understand and they, they're generous to you, they'll go, you didn't understand that, but we're learning that. Let me give you an example. So there's an exchange. This is a classic example from um, a textbook. There is a Western American and a Middle Eastern car driver, somebody driving maybe a taxi or an Uber, and the American gets into the car and the the um, Middle Eastern or Eastern taxi driver says, so how long have you been married? Just making conversation, right? Uber driver says, hey, how long have you been married? American says, about three years. Driver says, how many kids do you have? American says, we don't have any children yet. To which the driver, looking very sad, says, we had the same problem. He opens up the glove box, he extracts out a business card, and says, I, really, I know a really good doctor, a fertility doctor, and here's his business card for you to put in, and maybe you could talk to him. So let's break that conversation down. What, what is the Middle Eastern collectivist taxi driver, what is, how is he reading, that, how is he hearing and steering that conversation, somebody? Okay, so he assumes that there's some problem. They're, they're unable to have a child, and what else is he assuming? That they won't. That they what? They won't. That they want to have a children, and therefore, since they want to have a child, they're obviously trying in his mind, but being unsuccessful. For three years. For three years, his thought is let me help them. They have the same problem that I had. Now, turn around and listen to that and move through that story through the lens of the modern-day American who's riding in the back of that Uber slash taxi. What's that person potentially here? I mean, is it possible that that's exactly the scenario? 
Yes. It is possible that, you know, an American could be trying, you know, these Americans could be trying to do that. It's not something we would probably share with a taxi driver. <laughs> well, I've been married three years and, you know, try as we might, we're not getting any kids. You don't happen to have a fertility doctor you could recommend, right? That's a, we call that a low context. We're a low context community. Like, we don't think you need to know that, right? So that's possible. But what are the other options? They have no interest in having children. They could be, we don't want children, which is possible, right? Or, we don't want children getting, yet. We don't want children yet. Getting to know each other. Yeah, we're, we're, st we're, we're newly, newlyweds. It's, you know, it's a little bit early for us to be thinking about bringing kids in. We're going to wait till college is done, till our career is started, any of those things, right? But you see, in that Eastern collectivist culture, it went without saying that people marry to do what? Have yeah, to start a family. It's just built into it. So why would you get married if you didn't want to have kids? I mean, that's the logic that's automatically, this is the assumed, unspoken things, you see, that are undercutting, or not, that are the undercurrent, not undercutting, maybe undercutting too, the <laughs> undercurrent, right, of that interaction. So any suggestion of, um, I don't want children, we don't want, we're not sure we want children, or we're waiting, is kind of like, in their mind, it's kind of like saying, um, why, it's like going to the grocery store without having any intention of cooking, or signing up to go to university and you're never going to attend class. But that's all assumption, it's all unspoken things that you are supposed to know. So here's, you know, here's the statement. I mean, is that true, that statement where, uh, you know, you get married to have children and grow family, is that true of every single Eastern collectivist culture? Is it true? No. It may be, it may not be. The, the answer is, we really can't... We can't assume. We can't assume either. So, that leads to the second. So, the un first underlying thing as we introduce this series is the most important things often go unsaid. That is a very important thing in Eastern culture. Family, children, how many children do you have? I mean, I am Salongo and Chris is Nalongo in Uganda. We have instant celebrity status because we have twins. <laughs> we like, you want it? Um, okay. Now, so that's step number one. Step number two, or the second, the second most important thing is this. General, generalizations generalizations are always wrong but <laughs> usually helpful yeah so generalizations are always wrong you can't generalize and say this applies to every situation that every character in the eastern every character in one of our scriptural narratives is going to have that same thought process but it's helpful the generalization is helpful because so much of what's being communicated in the story is unspoken. Does that make sense? So the two bases are what? Number one? Structure. The most important things, things in, the culture. in the culture. Or unspoken. Yes, go unsaid or unspoken. Number two, this is going to be the guiding principle. That's number one guiding principle. Number two? Generalizations are always wrong, wrong. and usually helpful. Because they're wrong because they don't speak to every single situation in every part of a culture, but they're helpful in that they help us see how different 
They are from our, uh, key here, our unspoken individualistic values, which, by the way, we're going to look at in the new year. So every culture has it, not just what we're looking at here in the Eastern collectivist culture of the scripture. We have it in our own modern, and we have it, and it's also unspoken. So let's dig in just a little bit here, okay? Genesis chapter 11 is where I want you to turn. And by the way, while you're turning there in either electronic or print form, some of you have been asking about um, the, the Common English Bible that we use. This is our Common English Bible. If you would like one of these, I'm going to just put this here, not because you don't have a Bible, but um, because uh, this is the translation we've been using. These are available. If you want one of these, just take it. All right, they're here for you to take so that some of you have been mentioning you don't have a common English Bible. These are, this is great because it gives you a lot of the background information here. So just, if you want it, take it home with you. Um, otherwise, turn in your print or in your electronic version to Genesis chapter 11 because this is a transition point in the early story, the, or what we call the origin stories of scripture. So Noah and his immediate family in chapter 10, have been spared from the universal flood, right? Civilization has been restarted, and people want to build a tower there that will reach up into the heavens. That's the basis of where we are, and God thwarts their plans, as you may remember, by mixing up the languages and dispersing people across the world. That is the beginning, not of races. Race is about blood skin color, eye color, right? No, this is the beginning of ethnicities. This is where people go and they begin and start their own cultures with their own languages, right? That takes place here. And at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to Abram, not Abraham at this point. I will, I know, accidentally, and Katie can follow up here, and so can Saji. It gets confusing, doesn't it? We're so used to Abraham, right? And Abram is the, is the character at this point. He has not received his new name. Um, and we're introduced to him at the end of a long list of Shem's descendants. Now, I won't make somebody read the entire <laughs> descendants list because it is like a, like a quiz gone really bad for name pronunciation. But I do want us to look at, beginning at verse 26. Somebody read for me. 26 down to the end of 32. 26 to 32. And again, we just want to be listening. This is the list of the descendants of Shem. They're not too hard, the names, I promise. 11, 26 to 32. Anyway. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity, in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The, the name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarah was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abraham his son, Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. 
and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 250 years, and Terah died in Haran. All right, moment of honesty. Great job, by the way. Yeah. Little, little hand clap there for Pete. <laughs> yes? Really? That's it? Sorry. Yeah, okay, golf clap. I got it. Golf clap. Beautiful. So, can, uh, moment of honesty here. Can we agree that most of us either skim these sections? Or we skip them completely, if we even bother to even pause long enough. We see the list of descendants, right? And we kind of go, right? Here's a question. Why do we do that? Why do most of us, come on, let's be honest, I'm not the only one, skim it at best? It's very complex. It's complex, okay. It doesn't sound really that interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah they had descendants. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. They lived this long and they had these kids. I skim them more for the, like, oh, cool, he lived 500 years. That's what catches my eye more than anything. Yeah. Is there You're like, really? Oh, cool, yeah. Any other reason? No really important information. I mean, it's just a genealogy. Yeah, for you, it, it doesn't give you any information that's important. I'm saying just get caught up on the names and pronunciations and it just... Frustrates me, so. Yeah, you don't want to, and if you're reading out loud, like, oh, this is no. the secret, as we talk about at the table all the time, if you just go with it, and you sound convinced that that's the way it should be said, <laughs> then no one's going to sit there and go, that wasn't right, that's not, <laughs> it's this, right? But we do, we tend to, right, pass right over it. But here's my question, should we care? I mean, it is part of what we call Holy Writ, it's there, it's in the scriptures, right? All scripture, Paul says, right? Is God breathed and is there for our instruction, reproof, right? Wow. Instruction in righteousness. That means that even genealogies are part of that instruction. Well, and it also does eventually establish Jesus' timeline himself. Right. So there is a piece about historical accuracy, being able to pass and say, here is the genealogy. And by the way, patronage and lineage is a huge deal in Eastern culture. We're going to look at that in the weeks to come, right? So having that, being able to say, I am the son of this, who is the son of this, who is the son of this, gives you street cred. Well, and as much as I don't like when I actually read it, like even in this, notice that he had three sons, but he only took two. So it starts to make you start seeing the family, family dynamics. Yeah, like what that. happened to the third one? He dies. His third son is dead. Right, so Lot's father dies. Doesn't it say that at the beginning there, somewhere around? Maybe it's right before we started. But he had Abram, Nahor, and Haran, right? Right, Haran. Died. And Haran died, but he took the other two with him. And Lot. Lot was Haran. But the point being, you notice, right? You pay attention, and you notice something like, okay, somebody's dead, or somebody's not coming, right? So you picked out that piece. Obviously, we know about it confirms prophecy, right? We have all of these pieces about Jesus and who he's going to be related to and all of that. We have that piece. But I also think it gives us a little bit of insight into the character of God, that he's um, a really detailed-oriented person and at the risk of, like, abandoning all of us who aren't ones. I'm not crazy. Okay. Sorry. No, clear me up. They didn't take Nahor. They didn't. Okay, good. I didn't notice that. So because they took Lot and Abram. Gotcha. Right. And Nahor stayed behind. But Nahor was not there. Good. So pay. So hold that thought. <laughs> but I had to read back. But here's the perfect. Here's the perfect. So Courtney is a one. Sorry, I am a one. <laughs> and Abram one. Which is my point exactly. Like for some of you're like making generalizations. <laughs> they are in. I mean that's correct. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> but you say okay. So now looking at that list, knowing that it's there for a purpose, look back at that list. 
What are some of the things that um, that are different? You mentioned one, two of three kids get to go, but now look at the description of Abram and Sarai, which is different than the description of every other couple there. I think it's in verse 30. There's a little detail. They're unable to have children. Yeah, so they're barren. They're unable to have children. We just skim right over that, right? No other person on that list is described that way, right? Everyone has this one. They have this son. They have this son. They have this son. Then you get to Abraham. Abram. See, I already did it. Abram and Sarai. And it says they have no children. Now, we might, in the West, just kind of read over that. Okay. It's a little tidbit of information. They either don't want children or they want them and they haven't been able to have them yet. Say again? They need to talk to the Uber driver. They need to get to the Uber driver. Exactly. Yes, I like that. I know a guy. Yeah, I know a guy. I can help you with that. Um, and we read past that just like it's another piece of information. Like, But the authors, and I say authors because I think Genesis has some editing that goes on, right? So the authors expect us literally, to see that as a stand-out statement. Filled with unspoken things. Shame. <laughs> Why shame? They didn't have kids. That was everything. He has no descendants, nobody to carry on the family lineage. So we notice that. It's like, okay, there's a problem here. And, oh, by the way, if they could have just made that statement that, um, you know, Terah had this son named Abram and they have no children, right? But it's in the long list of people, right, who have children. And by the way, who's the firstborn of Terah? Abram. Abram. How is the land? How is everything in the family passed along? Firstborn. The first primary son. So here's Abram, who is the, the one who is supposed to take care of the entire family moving forward. Right? It's going to be his responsibility, and they insert the line, he does not have children. Shame is absolutely at the top of the list. Shame for who or whom? The wife. Yeah. So shame for the wife, obviously, in that culture, right? If, if the culture is you get married to start a family, and you are unable to have a family, we know this story throughout several narratives in the First Testament, right? The shame that goes with that. What else? Where else is there shame? It is shame through Abram to the father because his okay. mind is not yeah. going to continue yeah. through that first son. So you have the shame that's associated with Sarah and Abraham as the couple without any children, but then kind of through them as the firstborn, right, to the father, right? So they have no... He has no heir, no one to pass it on, at least the way that it would be traditionally passed along, right? So we have that piece. Anybody else? Any other shame involved here? Again, unspoken. Well, I would have, I mean, just reading back through it, so one of the brothers has a wife who is the daughter of another brother. Mm -hmm. So the whole family is going to feel that shame radiate out. Mm -hmm. Because it's so, I mean, they're so tightly knit in that. Well, and is it additionally kind of like driven in the fact that Lot exists? Oh, and they had Lot. The constant reminder that even a dead guy had a son. Had a son. I mean, it's all, it's all in there. It's all in there if we read the story, right? But the problem is that we, when we think of marriage, what words generally come to mind? 
When we think of marriage. Love. Love. Right. But it was my BFF. But it was arranged marriages back then. Right. So we have a different kind of culture, right? What part did love play in those ancient Semitic marriages? Nothing. I mean, we hope in our good, reading through our good, individualistic Western eyes, we really hope that they're in love, don't we? I mean, that's what we want. We want Abraham, Abram, to be in love with Sarai and to be wrought and broken up over the fact that this is probably a big deal in their marriage, right, in that day and time. But we have to be careful. We can't overlay our understanding. That's not why love and, you know, they didn't meet at the ball, Right? <laughs> These are arranged marriages, as you said. And why did ancients marry? Kids. You have kids. What else? Back then? Yeah. Treaties or. Yeah, so, so you would cement alliances. Or? And what else? Strengthen the bloodline. Yeah, strengthen the bloodline, have strategic alliances, right? Because we're in this culture of nomads, right? And battling and war and all of these things. So there were all kinds of practical reasons for it. And when you got married, this was the expectation. You're going to have kids. It's going to be a strategic alliance, likely. And it's going to develop relationships and the bloodline, right? <clears throat> but I think there's one more piece that we're going to miss here about shame and what's happening that's going to drive the rest of the story here in another minute when we move on. What do we know about the religious culture into which Abram was born? What do we know about the religious culture of the time in which Abram was born? Um, it was huge on fertility. I mean, they had fertility gods and stuff back then, right? So monotheistic or polytheistic? Polytheistic. So polytheistic, we've talked about this, and for those of you who are new at the table, this is going to like blow your mind for a little bit. We can talk about it later. Remember, we believe that the Elohim, right? Lowercase g-o-d in the scripture, Elohims. We, again, here's a perfect example of where Westerners, we think of God and define God attributally. So God is a God because he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-loving. The descriptions of Yahweh, that's in your most English Bibles when you see capital O, L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's translation of Yahweh. When you see Lord, L-O-R-D, it's usually Elohim. Elohim, gods were positional. It re referred to someone or a being that is not on the realm of humanity. It's up here. So the sons of God, right? Those Elohim that we read about in Genesis, right? These are regional, lowercase gods. And they're powerful. We read the Exodus story, don't we? It wasn't accidental that those magicians were able to copy and mimic every one of Moses' miracles, except for one. Anybody know which one that was? The final one? Yeah. The over. Yeah. Yahweh is superior. That was his proof. I am superior. You're, you're Elohim, the ones that you worship. So knowing this, polytheistic, regional, and typically, each god had a specialty, like you were talking about, Dan, right? That adds another layer to the story. Unspoken. They were not blessed by the gods. Exactly. So the shame that's involved is not just family, it's not just Abraham, it's this god whose job it is to provide for us and do the best for our family isn't doing it. So when we hear the story, that Tara says, I'm going to take, I'm going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, which is way down in like modern-day Iraq, Iran, 
right? I'm going to follow the Fertile Crescent to the very top northern part of it there to Haran. I'm going to go to a different region with a different God, and I'm going to take part of my family with me, right? The motivation behind that is what we're seeing here. That's unspoken. The motivation is shame, right? A desire to be and try another. He didn't move like that for no reason at all, right? To have this behind the story. Terah takes his family in the hopes that this new God, this new place is going to have a new God that's going to do better for them. It's not the only motivation, but it's part of the motivation, right? That's going to be able to get his son, his firstborn, and their family stabilized. Because if Terah dies, it's a nightmare. The children and the children of children and Lot and all of these people fighting for who's going to be in charge, who's going to be the, the head of the household, all of this is getting ready to happen. Make sense? Questions about that real quick? Does it make sense? That's why it's in the story. This is unspoken things. I can hear it. I'm just trying to figure out if if you know that the firstborn son is the one who inherits, what's the fight? He doesn't have an heir. So I'm saying... Uh, yet. Yet, correct, yet. Now, what we know about the story is we're going to find out is Abraham... Abram. Abram is 65. Let me make sure I got my numbers right. Yeah, 65. No, he's 75. He's 75. Sarai is 65 when this takes place. Genesis 6, by the way, tells us that, uh, I think it's 6 in verse 11, says that as a result of um, one of the reasons why God... Um, started the thought of spreading the people around the world is that in Genesis 6 it says that the sons of God that's the Elohim, were looking at the daughters of men, that's humanity and they were intermixing right then the flood comes to wipe them out and he says as a result of this intermarriage I'm going to limit life now to 120 years, on average 120 years pre-flood, a lot longer than that, Dan was talking about 500 years notice you'll see God said 120 years, you start seeing it dropping, dropping, dropping through that genealogy. All right. If you're 65 as a woman and you're 75 as a man, you're at the cusp in that day and age of 120 years of being what? Yeah, past childbearing time. All of that is un unsaid. It's unspoken in the text. And it's like panic time. Obviously, this God isn't going to do it for us. I'm ashamed. This is shameful. This is following us everywhere. Let's go 800 miles across desert in the Fertile Crescent to a place called Haran. Which is his son's name. Which is weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that makes it really confusing. <laughs> it is. It makes it really confusing. All right? Possibly something more So that's the basic. Now, that's the backdrop. So when we pick up 12, chapter 12, somebody read. 12, Genesis chapter 12, this is where we're introduced to Abram's family, I guess more specifically Abram and God's interaction with Abram. We are now in Haran. When we pick up chapter 12, somebody read, I think it's just read me six verses, I think. The Lord said to Abram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected, 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram left just as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all of their possessions, and those who became members of their household in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Uh, when they arrived in Canaan, Abraham, Abram <laughs> traveled through the land as far as the sacred place at Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. The Canaanites lived in the land at that time. Perfect. So he's in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is way over in, in, um, in modern-day Iraq, Iran, Assyrian Empire. Comes up, way up north around the Fertile Crescent, north of there to Haran. And then he drops down into... What is what we would commonly know in the time of Jesus is the Holy Land. He's in Canaan, the promised, what would ultimately be the promised land, right? It's going to be promised to him. Notice there is, um, there's not a direct promise here, is there, of like an heir. It's not like directly promises, but what's included, I mean, what's the general gist of what's being promised to Abram here, to Abram here? What's the promise? It will make of you a great nation. Yeah, so from him is going to come a great nation. There's a lots of ways that that could happen, right? So it's not specific here about necessarily about the heir, but at least remember now the context of this is that his former God, if you would, because remember God's a regional, so he's moved into a completely different region with different gods, right? His God failed to provide an heir, and I know this is hard to hear, his marriage was a failure. Let that sink in for a minute. His marriage, in the eyes of that culture, is a complete and utter failure, right? And yet, when we find out, we get this, we get this interesting um, thing that happens in Canaan. Yahweh, this is Yahweh, this is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the one true God. This isn't an Elohim. This is Yahweh speaking to him. Um, he speaks to Abram, and the narrative makes it seem as though hearing from a God was a fairly common thing. How does that resonate with us here in the West? I mean, well, first, I, I'm making that assumption. Do you read it that way, that it sounds like this is a... I mean, there's nothing in the text that makes it sound like Abram was... There's no fear not at the beginning of this one. Yeah. Which is a common thing. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. None of that. Well, but we also are only hearing the stories that, that heard from God. Like, there's a lot of people. I'm just saying, I mean, it could also be just be a ratio thing. But yes, the fear things kind of says it's not a... It seemed like it was normal. It was semi-normal occurrence. Like, it was not like a big deal. Well, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I went to this new place, and the God of this new place spoke to me. Told me this. Like, it's almost like matter-of-fact, isn't it? But in our Western culture, are we suspicious of this? Come on. Why would why would a God bother any God? Doesn't necessarily mean a of any God bothered to stoop to talk to an individual, right? Not that big, you know. For us, it's uh, wow, right? But what does this un, at this point is still an unnamed God? We know it's Yahweh because we have to be careful. Um, I titled this section "Reading the Bible Backwards." That's the title of today's little get Reading the Bible backwards. We know the story, so we read it backwards. We're like, oh yeah, God is this, God is this, Yahweh is this, 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 and this. But Abram knows none of that. 
It's just an unnamed God who's come to speak to him, and he offers them something. What does he offer them? Everything. I mean, having a family, sons, children. Well, he says to make your name respected, so he's restoring yeah. the shame. Yep, so removing or restoring the shame, reversing the shame, right? But it comes at a cost. What's the cost? Yeah, he has to leave his family, a good part of his family, and the gods that he grew up worshiping, right, behind. What about that offer might be enticing to Abram and Sarai? Well, the fact that they have their kids is shameful, so having basically a game to restart or start over is like, okay. I mean, especially when you start considering where they are in the in their age, I mean, he's 75 plus now, or they're about 75, she's 65, at the end of what would be considered the natural window for childbirth, and it's like, we get one more shot. So it's almost like they weigh the benefits out and they go, okay, I'll go to this place. Because for us, we go, why would they do that? Because mm -hmm. in our culture, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in that culture, the chance to have an heir and escape and have that shame restore, have the honor of the family restored, is paramount. It's huge. So right? we're primarily motivated by them having a kid. An heir. To carry on the family name, the legacy, the, the patronage, the hierarchy, all of these things that we'll be looking at in weeks ahead, which are motivating factors, driving factors, is what moves them to take what we would look at as like extraordinary actions. Not quite, maybe not quite as extraordinary in, in terms of how we think of it, but for them to leave family and leave land and go to a place where they don't know the culture, they don't know the gods, big deal. But they weigh the options and they say, we need to go. So Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65. When God tells them to leave Haran for this place, he would show them. And then 10 years and two chapters later in Genesis, chapter 15, God makes the first, so flip over to 15, God makes the first of two covenants specifically promising that a biological child, not the head of a household, would be his heir. Somebody look at 15, like just read the first three or four verses. Can I ask a question before yeah. you go there? At this point, do you think the reason Lot's going is maybe Abram sees him as being his heir? Likely. Um, um, rather than Abram getting this feeling that he's going to have suddenly him. Yeah, so Lot would, Lot would hold a position, likely what we would call in this patriarchal system, um, he would hold the head of household. So the reason that, that Abram is so deferential to Lot throughout the story, when we think Lot's a, like, a loser. I mean, that's how we read it, right? Don't we? Pretty much, right? I mean, when you, when you he's just a pain in the patookie. For Abram, right? Well, I know, but that's how we read it. We're reading the story, right? But the reason he keeps giving him deferential treatment is he, logically, he could be the one he could he would assign it to. His father's dead. It would be a natural progression, right? But now we get in 15. Somebody read the first three or four, I don't know, four verses, something like that, just to give us a sense of what it's like. After these events, the Lord's word came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your protector. 
your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you possibly give me since I still have no children? The head of my household is Elazir, a man from Damascus, he continued. Since you haven't given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. The, Lord came, the Lord's word came immediately to him. This man will not be your heir. Your heir will definitely be through your own biological child. Then he brought Abram outside and said, Look up the sky and count the stars if you wish to think you can count them. If you think you can count them. He continued, This is how many children you will have. Abram trusted the Lord, and the Lord recognized Abram's high moral character. So, 14 years, two chapters later, from what we just read in 12, right? God renews that promise with Abram when he changes his name to Abraham. All right? So what's transpiring here, right? So they've got this promise. They've gone to this new place with a new God. They've been there for some years, probably around 14 years. And what's happened? It sounds like things have gotten worse. Not only have things... Well, yeah, things have gotten worse. Why? Because no. some guy named Elysier is now the head of the household. He's almost, it's almost like they've gone, all right, we came to the new place. We've got this new God. We've been here for some time. We followed his instructions and bumpkiss, nothing. Well, but, I mean, he has, he has accrued wealth. He is known. Right. So the, the promise so, has been kept, right, that part. Right. He is getting famous. True. He doesn't have a kid. But he still doesn't have a kid. And what else has happened now over 14 years? Long. The wife that was 65 is now 79, pushing 80. No children. And the promise is you will have a biological child. Now, we read this. God speaks. Yahweh speaks to Abram. Does Abram tell Sarah? Sarah? Sarah. Well, I'm just going to go with Abraham and Sarah now because it's about that time. <laughs> Does Abraham tell Sarah what God says? It doesn't look like it. I don't see that he does. So what happens next in the story? You remember the story. Well, she tells him to go sleep with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, so if you remember, if you kept going and we went into chapter 16 and then virtually into chapter 17, her response to this was, since God has kept me, Genesis 16, from giving birth, knowing in the back of the mind that God has told Abram or Abraham that he's going to have an heir, she comes up with a solution. She's going to help God out a little. Her solution is take my handmaiden, Hagar, and have what? So here's my question. Can we blame her? For this action? Blame her wisdom from the standpoint that's never going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so normal. I mean, let, let, yeah, maybe let's put it this way. Do you think that raised any eyes, like eyebrows, in that culture and day and time? No. I mean, it's a practical solution to an imminent and huge problem. Kind of like in vitro. <laughs> surrogate. Surrogate. Yeah, surrogate. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's it's a like a really weird kind of surrogate thing going on, right? Again, remember we're we have to be careful. We are 
we're layering our idea of marriage and love and commitment and you know we're talking multiple wives multiple you know situations and we're like oh no she's given her her handmaid to her husband and we're like oh my goodness that's like the well, it's yeah. a bad let's it's, all agree it's a bad idea but it's a bloodline it's his bloodline it's his bloodline it's his bloodline and that's important in the story right she's at the end of her childbearing years maybe maybe that's what's happened she's done and she's like, the only way this is going to happen, I'm going to help God. Somebody said that. I'm going to help God, right? I'm going to make this happen to the end of my childbearing years. It's a way out of shame for herself because this is her handmaiden. So it's like on behalf of her, right? It's a way to share some blame with Abram, right? Like you haven't been, we don't know whose part's not working here, but here maybe it's you because if that girl doesn't get pregnant, then we know it's Abram. And so it's like, not me, right? Um, a way to satisfy the hopes for the rest of the family about, okay, there's going to be some continuity here. There's not going to be this rivalry of who's going to do what. And literally a way to build a family for herself. But I think it would have made sense. Here's my point. All of that to say it would have made sense, I think, to the people in that day and time in that culture. Of course she would do that. This is key. I have, there has to be an heir to pass the family on or it's going to be chaos. Right? I know it's still chaos. <laughs> we know it'll be chaos because from our Western, then we go back and we ask questions like, okay, so if the, her goal was for Abram to have a child through Hagar, why did she get mad when it happened? That's what a Westerner thinks, right? Right. Well, that then goes back to the question do you think she really wanted him to have a child? With, with, with Hagar, no. So it was a way of shaming Abram, like maybe it's his fault, and then when she found out it really wasn't his fault, and what, oh now she's in, you see what I'm saying, it's just like, it's well that just, backfired. Yeah, it's a, it's a mess, right? And that's why I wanted to bring this, we Westerners find that arrangement unthinkable. Now, we do it with surrogates, right, where we have either a known or an unknown person, but this idea of, like, the the two of them cohabiting, you get where it's going, right? Is not something in the West we would think of as, oh yeah, that's how you solve that well, problem. Even having someone in your household that you're going to have to live with the consequences of it. I mean, it's one thing if you have a surrogate, but they live, you know, in another yeah. state. This is part of your household. <coughs> so I'm doing all this as an introduction this week, as to kind of example, give you an example of the huge cultural gaps between the biblical world and our own that I would say, you know, for us, it's puzzling. It's puzzling at best, right? But this part of the story of the Bible assumes that we all understand why these actions were taking place. We all understand why all those details were included. Oh, you know, so much being said in an economy of words. Abram and Sarai were barren, using the King James. We're, I think it's King James, right? whatever it was uh, that you read. We're barren. That was the word you used. We're barren. Those few words carried this much unspoken. Right? This was, that little phrase is the motivating factor behind everything that follows in the next seven or eight chapters in the book of Genesis. And we're supposed to know it. The readers would have understood it. The original readers would have understood that as, okay, that makes sense. 
So why? Why learn about these kind of what I'm calling foundational social structures of the biblical world? Well, we know that the Bible is a, a library of books and letters that were written by people in collective societies about the lives of people in collective societies, which they intended people of collective cultures to read. So therefore, they assume some things. They assume some of these social systems that are part of the collective system, and so they're rarely mentioned. And if they are mentioned and highlighted, then you pay double attention to them. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some familiar scripture stories um, with an eye for some of these values. And here's some of the ones we'll be focused on. This idea of kinship, the redeemer kinsman, the redeemer piece to this, kins, uh, kinship, patronage, Brokerage is a, probably a phrase we're not familiar with, but it sounds exactly what it is, like in a collectivist culture. Um, you don't go directly to the person you have a problem with. You always send an emissary on your behalf. I'll give you an example of the story we may look at. So when even God follows this in the collectivist culture, so when David is caught up with sin with Bathsheba, David and God have had a close relationship. He's been described as a man after God's own heart. God could have just said right to David, uh, hello. What does he do instead? Sends a prophet. He sends Nathan, right? That's an example of patronage, uh, excuse me, brokerage. We see that in the Esther story. We'll look at some of these, right? Um, and then obviously the big ones of honor and shame, and maybe we'll f we'll fill in some other ones there that are just kind of, yeah, you're like, just this throw them in, right? That are the underlying pieces of the story. All right. Any any questions or final thoughts as we kind of wrap up? Sorry, I know it was long. Um, by the way, you were probably wondering why we didn't do music today. We have some some things happening with um, Louisville with a group of this size singing inside a small group like this. So hopefully they'll return next week. So we normally do that, but um, they're trying to get ready for uh, Western days and they've got some weird things going on that we're just trying to be um, good community citizens. Yeah, go ahead. Not to throw a flying ointment here. But, but you will anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know my nature. <clears throat> so. How do we know that we're interpreting? We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.